This audio presentation is brought to you by the Baptist Missionary Association Theological Seminary. The BMA Seminary provides accredited theological education for equipping God's people for Christ-centered service and leadership roles with three online degrees available now. We are committed to the inerrancy and authority of Holy Scripture and to making disciples of Jesus Christ. For more information about the BMA Seminary and its online degree programs, go to bmats.edu or call toll-free 800-259-5673. That's 800-259-5673. Thank you, Dr. Holmes and Seminary, for allowing me this privilege and honor to be with you this morning on the drive down here. I was thinking about my time in seminary and just how formative they were for me, thinking about uh, a few professors. I think about Dr. Stan May, who had an impact on my life, just deepening a desire for the nations. Uh, I think about uh, Dr. John Mahoney, who made theology very relevant. I think about uh, Dr. Easley, who was a personal friend and mentor and showed me what it looked like to not just be a disciple, but to be a disciple maker. And he would gather three or four students each semester and just say, let's meet together and let's go over the word and let's read books that will enhance and deepen our walk with Christ. And he would meet with us on Friday mornings before class. And so seminary for me was a very formative time in my life. And so I'm just I'm just greatly honored to be here. I do remember one thing that one of my professors said. He wasn't my favorite professor because he would oftentimes be lecturing and he could just see the anguish all over our face, all over our faces. And he would say, it sure is good to be on this side of the desk. (laughs) I know that's probably not encouraging for you if you're in school, but man, I sure am glad I can say it now. It sure is good to be on this side of the desk. Well, if you've got your Bibles, Mark chapter 10, Dr. Holmes was correct. We're going to look at the entire chapter. There's five or six different episodes, different scenes in Mark chapter 10, depending on how you uh, break them down. And each passage is worthy of full treatment. Each is worthy of a whole sermon distinct and concentrated on that particular passage. But... um, As Dr. Holmes, whenever he called me and said, you know, if you could do something for Mark chapter 10, that'd be great. And I wish I could tell you that at that moment I began praying about Mark chapter 10, but I didn't. I did what most of us do, and we think, have I preached a sermon out of the Gospel of Mark before? In particular, Mark chapter 10. So I went and looked in my files, and sure enough, I've got five or six sermons I preached through the Gospel of Mark several years ago, and I got... uh, Five or six sermons in in Mark chapter 10. But what will happen to you if it hadn't happened already is you will come to a passage of Scripture that you have preached before and you will look at it a couple of years down the road, a second time, and you'll say, well, how did I miss that? How did I miss that? As I began to read Mark chapter 10, I began to see that there's a whole lot more going on in the entire chapter than just in individual episodes. And so I want us to look at the entire chapter so that we can appreciate more fully what's going on in each individual scene that's here. And it just reminded me. It, it, I'm, I'm 
I'm overwhelmed at how absolutely brilliant these biblical authors are. Attributing all glory to the Holy Spirit for inspiring the writing of His Word. But when you look at a passage like Mark chapter 10, and, and you're familiar with each one of these episodes, but when we look at them as a whole, we're just, we need to be overwhelmed at the craftsmanship that Mark had in putting this gospel together. The, the scene here is Jesus heading towards Jerusalem, heading towards the crucifixion. He's, he's on his way. This is his last trip to Jerusalem. And we encounter Jesus meeting with or having different encounters with several people. And it might be easy for us to think that, well, these are the only encounters that he had on his way to Jerusalem. But you and I, we both know that's not, that's not right. There were many things that happened on his way to Jerusalem. Mark chooses several of them to convey a theme, to get across one purpose, one message. And he's going to use several stories just to reemphasize that over and over and over. We're reminded of John at the end of his gospel Whenever he says, I could have told you many things and they could have filled up the scrolls. These are the ones that we've selected here. And so we need to keep in mind that as we read through Gospels, in particular what we're looking at today, Mark had much ammunition to choose from, but he pulls out just several things for our benefit here. But in order to understand Mark chapter 10, we also need to have kind of a a broader understanding of what's going on in the Gospel of Mark to begin with. And so why did he write this Gospel? Well, we don't really have a clear-cut purpose statement in the Gospel of Mark like we do in other Gospels. For instance, in the Gospel of Luke, where Luke tells Theophilus, I've put this together to give you an orderly account of the life of Jesus. We, in the Gospel of John, John tells us that these things were written down so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you have life in His name. Mark's not that clear-cut. He's a little bit more artistic, a little bit more poetic, a little bit more nuanced. But when we read through the Gospel of Mark, there's some very identifiable things that we understand that Mark's trying to get across to the original audience. One of the things that he's trying to put on display for his original audience and for you and for me is the absolute power and authority of Jesus Christ. In the beginning of the gospel, it's made very clear that there's no one that has ever taught like Jesus teaches with his authority. And, and we see that over and over. Mark's one of the ones that uh, he, he, he puts on display the miracles of Jesus probably more than any other gospel writer, over 20 miracles that, that Mark gives to us. Why? He wants to put on display the power and the authority of Jesus. But with the gospel of Mark, that power takes on and that authority takes on a new model. We think, or scholars think, that I don't put myself in that class, but the commentaries, most of them say that Mark is writing to probably a, a Roman audience. And they like power. They like authority. They're not too high on suffering and being a servant. But that's exactly what Mark is presenting Jesus as. He is the man of all power, all authority, and he is also the suffering servant. He is a servant. We're going to see those two themes in Mark chapter 10. And if you and I want to be followers of Jesus Christ, we better have an authority of which we stand, but we'd also better serve 
like Jesus serves. So Mark chapter 10. The first encounter here. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up and in order to test him, asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And he answered them, what did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. So the Pharisees come with this question, but you and I need to know that they're really not interested in Jesus' opinion on marriage and divorce. In fact, he's given it to them a couple of times. What they're really trying to do here is they're trying to trap Jesus. They're trying to set a trap for him because in that day and time, there were two schools of thought. One school of thought said, uh, it's okay to divorce your wife for just about anything. Did she burn the sloppy joes? Get rid of her. <laughs> that is grounds for divorce. Uh, uh, did, did you see someone else that you think might suit you better? And you can... Divorce. It was kind of a divorce your wife for any reason. And then there was a much stricter view uh, that were a more biblical view. And, and the Pharisees are hoping that Jesus will come out with some electrifying statement like he's done previously, like in Matthew chapter 5, which was a summary of the teaching that he had spread uh, throughout his journeys. And they're hoping that, that he will polarize the crowds and that some of the followers, followers will stop following Jesus and then the Pharisees can get back their influence, can get back their power, can get back their control with at least a segment of the ones that are following Jesus. And so this is really not a question really trying to embrace what Jesus has to say about divorce. Now you and I gain a lot from this passage about what Jesus thinks about marriage. But that's not really what was on the hearts of the Pharisees. Added to that, that Jesus' friend, John the Baptist, just a few chapters earlier, has just had his head cut off. Well, why did he have his head cut off? Because King Herod's wife did not like what John the Baptist was saying about Herod and Herodias' marriage. And so not only are the Pharisees trying to maybe divide Jesus' crowd that's following him, they're hoping that he will come out with some electrifying statement and then perhaps King Herod will hear about it or even better that Herod's wife will hear about it and she'll go after Jesus like she went after John the Baptist group because from the beginning, Mark chapter 2, Mark chapter 3, Mark makes it very clear that the Pharisees are out to do one thing and that is to destroy Jesus. And so it's interesting what Jesus does here. He, he asks them a question. What did Moses command you? And they tell him. And then, and then he says, but God says. And it's here that you see the power and the authority of Jesus. No matter the situation, no matter what he's facing, he is going to stand firm on the word of God. 
No matter what the consequences or perceived consequences may be, Jesus is going to be right there on the very forefront of the Word of God. Our children, we have three, my wife and I, we've been married for almost 15 years. We have three children, and they've become very familiar with a phrase that uh, I'm pretty sure my wife came up with it. You know how kids are when they're young. They want to divide and conquer. If they go to their mother and they ask her a question, and can I do this, and mom says no, well, the next place they go to is to dad. And maybe the two have not communicated yet. Dad, can I do this? And if I sense that they're trying to split me and their mother up, I'll say, Daddy says what Mommy says. <laughs> and so they're very familiar with the phrase, Daddy says what Mommy says, or Mommy says what Daddy says. In this text, Jesus displays His ultimate wisdom, His ultimate resolve, His ultimate authority, and He says, I say what God says. There is no firmer foundation as a pastor, as a minister, as a person who follows Christ to be able to say, I say what God says. One of my preaching professors preached a sermon that addressed uh, some sin that was taking place in the church. It needed to be addressed. It was just one of those difficult things that he had to do. He didn't enjoy doing it. The people didn't really enjoy hearing it. It was awkward for everyone all the way around. And he said that a church member came up at, uh, to him afterwards and said, well, preaching that sermon took a lot of courage. And my preaching professor said to him, preaching that sermon didn't take courage. Not preaching the sermon would have taken more courage. Well, what do you mean not preaching the sermon would have taken more courage? It would take more guts, more fortitude to take God's word, to know God's word, to understand God's word, to believe God's word, and then not stand on it. To say, I understand what you're saying here, Lord. I understand that it doesn't really matter the consequences that come. I know that your word is true, but I'm going to turn away from it just to appease the crowds. Yeah. It takes more courage to do that than to actually preach the sermon. Jesus here puts on his resolve and his authority. He lets everybody know, this is where I stand. It's on the word of God. Well, what does that have to do with the following couple of texts? And keep in mind, we could dive deep into each one of these singular passages. We're not going to do that. We want to see Mark chapter 10 as a whole. I want you to see in, in that first little scene there, just the authority of Jesus Christ. Where he stands. But then look at what it says. And they were bringing, verse 13, they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. And when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and he blessed them, laying his hands on them. And so after teaching the disciples, whether they're in the house still or they've gone back outside the house, wherever it may be, people are bringing their children to Jesus. They want him to lay his hands on them and to pray for them, to bless them in some way. Just got back from Honduras. Uh, and one of the things that the kids would do there if they were about six years old or under, if they wanted to, uh, if you hadn't met them before, they would walk up to you like this with both their hands like this. And the parents said, this, they want you to bless them. They want you to pray over them. And so you would take their hands and, and you would just say a little blessing, a little prayer over them. 
It's kind of the same thing here. Well, the disciples see that the children are gathering in, that these people are crowding in, and children are kind of a disposable income, and in that day and time, they're not really well thought of. Keep them out of the way, the better seen, not heard type of thing. And so they're shooing them away, and it says that Jesus is indignant. By the way, this is the only place in, in, in the Gospels where you're going to see the emotions of Jesus come out like this way. Mark's very good about bringing out Jesus' emotions. You're going to see it in another place as well. But we, we understand that Jesus is angry. He's indignant. And and as the disciples are rebuking these people that are bringing in the children, Jesus rebukes his disciples and he lets them know very quickly that truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom like one of these children shall not enter it. We've all heard that passage. Perhaps we've even preached that passage before. And when we get to this question well, what does it look like to receive the kingdom of God like a child? There's lots of things that can be said. There's a lot of ink that has been spilled trying to explain what it means to receive the kingdom like a child. We talk about a lot of different characteristics of children. Uh, but I think what would be better is to let the word of God speak. Because I think Mark answers the question in the next episode. It's the rich young ruler. I don't see how that has anything to do with children receiving the kingdom of God. Well, just, let's just read and see if Mark is tying something together. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. I would, I would love to know what expression that love took right there. This is another one of those emotional type of aspects that we see in the Gospel of Mark. You don't see this anywhere else except in the Gospel of Mark. It says that Jesus loved him and, and and listen, the most loving thing that you can do for people is to give them the truth. And that's what Jesus does here. Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. And disheartened by the same, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. And then watch what Jesus does. Jesus looked around and he said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter what? The kingdom of God. He's just told them, if you don't receive the kingdom of God like a child, you will never enter it. And then he has this encounter with this rich young ruler who does not want to enter the kingdom of God like a child. He wants to hold on to his possessions. He wants to come to Jesus with all of his confidence and all of his trophies and all of his treasures. And what he's really looking for, for, for from Jesus is a compliment that you've done so well. Why wouldn't I accept you into my kingdom? It says he walked away disheartened. It means that he walked away confused. He walked away without confidence, which means that he approached Jesus with confidence. Look at how well I've done for myself. I've kept all the commandments from my youth. Why wouldn't you want me on your team? And Jesus loving him exposes his heart. And so we have kind of 
in a contrary fashion what it looks like not to enter the kingdom of God. How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, and what does he call them? Children. Children. How difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished, and they said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at him and said, with man it's impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible. So we go back to the original question. How does a child receive the kingdom? Well, we see how he doesn't receive the kingdom. We see what's going to keep him out of the kingdom. But how does a child receive the reign and the rule of God? Now, I think one of the things that we could say about receiving the kingdom is that it's with simple trust and faith. God says you need to let go of something. You let go of it and you trust Him. You need to let go of your riches. You let go of it and you trust Him. You see God as the authority. You see God as the one that's the greatest prize. And if He says you need to let go of this, then you let go of it. It's simple trust and faith. This rich young ruler came with confidence, but he left with confusion. He came to impress. He came with a sense of arrogance as if to say, why wouldn't Jesus compliment me and how well I've done? And he left very confused because he didn't get the commendation he thought he deserved. Children don't come to Jesus looking for commendation. They don't, they don't, they don't have anything to bring. They just come looking. Looking for love. You're going to see a little bit more in, in another passage here in just a minute. Children don't come to impress Jesus. They don't have anything to impress with. And so Jesus encourages his disciples, be like children instead of like the rich man. No one can enter the kingdom of God on his own merits. We just sang the song. I don't, I don't boast in anything. No gifts, no power, no wisdom. I boast in Jesus Christ, his death and his resurrection. So no one can enter the kingdom of God on his own merits. It's absolutely impossible. The rich man finds it hard to believe and he tries to bring his bags of gold and trophies and accomplishments and tries to pull those through the eye of the needle and it will never, ever happen. The child, however, humbly accepts what the word of the Lord is. He accepts what God has done on his behalf and then God puts him through the eye of the needle into the kingdom and then look at what he gets. Peter began to say to him, see, we've left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, truly, I say to you, there's no one who has left houses or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold. You see, the blessing is on the other side of the cross. It's not on what you gain before you come to the cross. It's on the other side. Who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time? Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life but many who are first will be last and the last first that's going to be an important phrase as we continue through mark chapter 10 but in the middle of this little these little scenes you get you get the third time in god in, in mark's gospel where jesus predicts and tries to prepare the disciples for what's about to happen Verse 32, they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. Jesus was walking ahead of them and they were amazed and those who followed were afraid. 
Once again, I would love to know what Mark is talking about here. We don't really get an explanation, but he's just indicating to us the emotions of the people. And taking the 12 again, he began to tell them what, was hap- what would happen to him, saying, see, we're going, to, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. God will do the impossible. This is the third time that we have in the Gospels where Jesus has made this very clear. And you would think by this time that the disciples would get it, but they still don't. And so James and John come to him, the sons of Zebedee, and they say to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want for me to do? What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right, and one at your left, in your glory. They have some of the same troubles as the rich young ruler. They want to impress, the rich young ruler wants to impress Jesus. James and John want to be impressive to other people. They want the residual overflow of the glory of Jesus just to kind of flow down to them so that they can be seen as power and influential. They expect Jesus to come and take over this kingdom to overthrow the Romans and, and to do it with physical might and military force and they want to be in on it. They want to be right there on his right hand and on his left. I haven't quite figured out quite seen it yet what Jesus is talking about you don't know what you're asking are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I'm baptized they they said absolutely well notice what happens in verse 42 Jesus called called them to him and said to them you know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Well, you see the same phrase here as you did in the episode earlier. Where he says the first shall be last and the last shall be first. So we've got those two things tied together. Well, I want to go to this last part because it's another example. They came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him. And they called the blind man saying, Take heart, get up, he's calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? Well, do you remember what Jesus asked James and John? What do you want me to do for you? You've got the exact same question here. You've got two different responses. James and John are looking to impress other people with the residual overflow of the glory of Jesus. Blind Bartimaeus, he just wants mercy. He just wants mercy. Nothing in his hands that he brings. He just wants the mercy of Jesus. This is an example of a child entering and receiving the kingdom of God. What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. 
And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Whereas the rich young ruler was not willing to let go of his possessions and his wealth and his riches. Blind Bartimaeus, you say, well, blind Bartimaeus didn't have anything. He did. Did you see what happens? Look at what it says in verse 50. And throwing off his cloak. That may have been his only possession. That's what he would lay out in front of people as he sat on the side of the road and begged for money. And he says, I'm willing to depart with it if it means I get to be close to Jesus. If he's calling me, then then I'll let go of everything and, and come and be with Jesus. And then he follows him. Well, what are we supposed to learn from from all of this? What are we to learn from Mark 10? One of the first things is whom you consider necessary for the kingdom, who you think would be a great player in the kingdom of God is not necessary. You've got the rich young ruler and there's there's not a pastor in here who wouldn't say, I'd love to have that guy in my church. We would have made this guy a Sunday school teacher really quick. You're going to have people in your church when, you, when, when, when you're pastoring. And there's going to be a well-dressed family coming to your church. And they may be prominent in the community. And they're going to visit your church. And then someone's coming. They're going to come up to you and they're going to say, wouldn't they make great members of our church? My question is, who wouldn't make a great member of a church if they've been born again by the Spirit of God? Not everybody we think would make a great addition to the kingdom of God really understands what Jesus asked of them. And so you've got to be careful because you might be the very one. You might be like the disciples who are keeping away those whom God is saying, come on in. The disciples were rebuking the children and Jesus says, I want the children. The disciples in the crowds were trying to hush up Bartimaeus. He doesn't want anything to do with you, Bartimaeus. He doesn't want anything to do with you children. It's easy to do that. It's easy not to want your time to be bothered with the outcast of society. And it may be those people who understand entering the kingdom of God better than those that are sitting in your pews. Here's the second thing I think we learned from this. Is to be impressed with Jesus. Don't try to be impressive. Be impressed with Jesus. Don't try to be impressive. This is something that the original audience, that Roman audience, they needed to hear. They loved impressive people and they loved to impress as well. They loved the power. They loved the strength. They loved the might. They weren't too keen on being servants. They liked to be served, but they didn't like to serve. And it's easy for you and me To look at the rich young ruler and say, yeah, that rich young ruler, he didn't have it together. I'm glad I'm not like him. We don't oftentimes see ourselves in the rich young ruler, yet we are there. We want to impress God with all that we have. Look at my postgraduate work, Lord. Aren't you glad that I set things straight with this paper? Look at my volume of sermons. Aren't you glad that this church has had me here Look at the way that I outlined that text. Look at the way that I turned that phrase. Isn't that impressive? 
See, we're there. We're there over and over again. And we're looking to impress instead of being impressed by the majesty and the glory and the power of God in Jesus Christ. What else do you need me to accomplish, Lord? Because I'm pretty sure I can do it. You can't. You can't do anything. We, we just heard it read, John 15, 5. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Jesus is the impressive one. And until you become so impressed with him that you are willing to burn all of your accomplishments, throw all of your sermons into the trash and come empty-handed before the Lord and say, I need mercy. Just like a child, you will not live in, you will not live under the reign and the rule of God in his kingdom. That's for you and me. And so I pray that as you go out, you will be okay if no one ever knows your name. If you serve in some church and your name is never in lights, you don't get comments or likes on your Facebook statuses that you're okay with that because it's not about you impressing others. It's about being impressed with Jesus. We have here the summation, verse 45. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. The only way that you can be okay with not ever being known is if the life of Christ is living in you. And the only way the life of Christ is going to be living in you is if you put your faith and your hope and your trust in the cross and the resurrection. Because He knows how to live that life. He can live it through you. When that happens, Jesus is famous and not Cliff. And that's what we want. Would you pray with me?